So one of the big questions in Zen, as in many other traditions, is who am I? And today we're going to be exploring that. Um, uh, we really are, we are uh, an infinite variety of different minds, actually. And we're going to be exploring that as well. Um, but one of the things about Western Zen is that um, many, many Zen teachers uh, have also been uh, integrating various aspects of Western psychotherapy with um, Zen practice. And it's probably one of the most distinguishing characteristics maybe of Western Zen. You know, in the same way Buddhism sort of takes on cultural forms of the historical periods and cultures it, uh, it enters into. And uh, so, for example, when Buddhism came to China, um, it uh, absorbed the, the uh, religion of Taoism, for example. And uh, in that coming together of Taoism and Buddhism, we have the Zen tradition. And uh, so Zen will always take on different forms, and uh, each, uh, each, each practitioner, each teacher is going to be unique, and each Sangha is going to be unique as well. But we also try and maintain our connection with this very long and ancient tradition going back almost 3,000 years. So my teacher, um, Barry Majid, um, he was uh, trained as a... Um, uh, he began his training as a psychoanalyst about the same time he began his training in Zen. And uh, for all of his uh, uh, career as a uh, a Zen teacher and a psychoanalyst. He's been concerned with integrating those two different practices. At one stage, he was um, um, he was working with Bernie Glassman, who's a uh, first successor uh, in a very well known in the Mazumi Zen school, the White Plum Sangha. And um, I never knew Bernie, but like uh, at that. Uh, he, he went on to found what's called the Peacemaker Order. Um, but at, at that particular, at a particular time when Bernie Glassman was really into um, work practice and he established a bakery and was really passionate about baking bread and he wanted Barry to give up his career as a psychoanalyst and go and bake bread. And uh, Barry didn't think that was a very sensible idea, so he maintained his practice as an analyst. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, you know, we have this tradition in Zen about, you know, gardening and manual labour and so forth, which is all great fun and good stuff, but uh, it doesn't mean to say you can't be a student and a scholar at the same time as well, or a psychotherapist, or anything. But, I mean, well, not anything, maybe not working in an arms factory or something like that. That's part of the right vocation or right livelihood of the Eightfold Path. <clears throat> Um, so, um, I mean, but my, my foundation in, in psychotherapy wasn't in psychoanalysis, it was because uh, I trained as a social worker, I was introduced to family therapy first, and the, the first, so my training was initially by a family therapist in Adelaide, Michael White, who went on to found narrative therapy, and uh, with a, another family therapist uh, in New Zealand called David Epstein. And one of the differences between the family therapy tradition and, uh, and psychoanalysis is that in classical uh, psychoanalysis, uh, one could typically go and see your therapist you know, four or five times a week for years. So there's quite a different uh, 
form of therapy where you can actually you can you can spend a lot of time going round and round and round <laughs> and doing a lot of self exploration and the relationship becomes very central and very important. Um, so it is a very um, in some ways it's a dying tradition, but it's certainly still very much alive in New York and probably some other centres in the world, London, Sydney maybe. Um, but um, governments are very reluctant to fund psychoanalysis, as you could imagine. Um, but they're sort of like uh, able to fund 10 sessions a year for us, uh, which is good. Um, so that fits more a briefer kind of therapy. And um, so in many ways, as a family therapist of background, um, I'm always looking for ways in which we can go deeper but briefer. So it's a sense in which you want to try and facilitate a process for people. Uh, but with, um, you know, um, in fact, there was actually some family therapists used to specialise in one session therapy and they would uh, try and do their best to bring about a breakthrough in that one session. Um, so um, I'm going to talk a little bit about that today uh, in terms of um, the, uh, the Zen dialogue approach. Um, but like in, in terms of the practice foundations of Zen, we could probably sort of look at probably three foundations. The, the first one is the, the teacher-student relationship. And that's also where the koan practice comes into it. But in our school, we, we work more on our natural koans of, of everyday life so that um, really our, our life is our practice. So that uh, in, in our uh, work, in terms of the teacher-student relationship, the student will bring up anything which is coming up in their life. Everything is grist for the mill in terms of what you want to work on. Uh, the other foundation of practice, we could call it service or work practice. So I guess this is the idea that every aspect of our life uh, is a relationship and every aspect becomes practice, whether it's washing up, doing the garden, or whether it's the kind of vocation we choose. And so it is good to be, uh, you know, to, to, to have some conscious intentions around the vocation we choose that fits uh, with our values of the bodhisattva path and Zen. And finally, of course, the other foundation is, is, is Zazen, just sitting. And we recommend um, a daily practice of about um, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, if you can do that. Um, at least five times a week, preferably seven times a week, but sometimes it's inevitably we might miss a day here and there. Um, so the, um, the, uh, I, I believe it's much more important to have a daily practice than uh, to try and um, kind of like put all our eggs in the one basket of a long retreat. I and mean, the fact is we want every day to be an enlightened day. We want every day to be a good day. We want every day to be a mindful day, not just the times when we go on retreats. So that the importance of everyday practice is central. And really these, these three sort of foundations correspond to the, the way that of Buddha, the, the Eightfold Noble Path. So the, 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 the wisdom uh, aspect of it being the right understanding or view or right thought which we focus on in the koan or in the personal meetings with the teacher and clarifying the relationship between the self and the big self. The aspect of service and ethics, the right speech, the right action, the right livelihood and uh, in Zen we also have this thing called precept study where we uh, take the traditional precepts and try and apply them in our life in terms of the ethical conduct aspect of our practice. And the meditation, the, the right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. 
So all the, all those aspects of Zen practice are also expressions of the of the of the Buddhist path. Um, at the uh, but the Zen dialogue approach is interesting, um, and I'm I'm going to just give you an example actually from a traditional koan um, would have been written around about the 12th century. I can't remember now, um, maybe 11th century. Um, and, and traditional koans are. Usually, usually dialogues between the, the master and the student, between the, 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 the master of the temple and the monk in those days, because there, well, there, was, there was lay practice in those days as well. There were some very famous Zen masters, such as Bankai, who went out and talked to the, the farmers and the people working on the land and so forth. So the, but um, all the sort of literature that we have, all the the dialogues that were passed down were from, from the monasteries. <coughs> but this is a very famous and interesting koan, case 12 of the, of the gateless barrier, or the gateless gate, the Mumun Khan. And uh, it's, it's quite famous because the, in this one, the, the master's actually having a dialogue with himself. <laughs> Zugan calls master. So every day, Master Zugan used to call out to himself, Master! <laughs> and he would answer himself, Yes! Yes. Are you awake? He would ask. And would answer, Yes, I am. Never be deceived by others, any time, any day. No, I will not. And, um, and the, the commentary by the Mumon who collected the coins goes like this. Old Zugan himself sells and himself sells and himself buys. Mm. He has lots of masks of goblins and demons to play with. Why? A calling one, an answering one, an awake one, and one who will not be deceived by others. If you take these different appearances as really existing, you are altogether mistaken. If, however, you would imitate Zugan, your understanding is that of a fox. So there's a calling one, an answering one, an awake one, and one who will not be deceived by others. But there are also many, many others, many other selves that we have. And Mumun's poem goes, Those who search for the way do not realize the truth. They only know their old discriminating consciousness. This is the cause of the endless cycle of birth and death of samsara. Yet ignorant people take it for the original self. So I'm um, wanted to use that koan as an introduction um, to um, what um, some people call uh, Zen dialogue, and um, as a way of as an adjunct or complement or actual part, part of Zen practice, a way of helping us clarify this relationship between um, the awake mind and the, and, the, and the sleeping mind. Or in our ordinary mind Zen practice, we talk about being caught in the self-centered self, uh, and it's kind of like a dream, and then waking up from that. And um, so, the, there's, uh, there was, in, in terms of the uh, origins of the Zen dialogue, there are three uh, main uh, con, con streams contributing to it. The first one was a book that was written in 1989 called Embracing Ourselves. 
the voice dialogue manual and it's written by Hal and Sidra Stone. Hal Stone was a, uh, a Jungian analyst and he was also trained in Gestalt therapy and he originated this idea of having dialogues with the different voices or aspects or patterns or energies uh, within ourself. And um, so, and then another uh, book which was published in 1995 by Richard Swartz, who was in the family therapy tradition, it's called Internal Family Systems Therapy. And uh, so once again, he looked at the, the idea of the personality being formed of, of actually multiple personalities, but not literally a dissociated multiple personality, but how it's normal and natural for us all to have all these different aspects of the self. And in fact, we start to get an idea of the, of the self being this multifaceted diamond. We have all these different mm -hmm. aspects to ourself. And, and through our practice in terms of clarifying and getting to become intimate with ourselves, because Zen practice is really all about intimacy, intimacy with all our different aspects with ourself, but also with the vastness, uh, with the birdsong. Uh, with the mountain, so um, and the that 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 process of becoming intimate with ourselves and getting to know ourselves and clarifying how that relates to the the big mind and the big heart is is what the journey is all about. And um, so the the the, the third contributor um, was a book uh, published in two thousand and seven called Big Mind Big Heart Finding Your Way by Zen master Dennis Genpo Mazel. And uh, he was the second successor in the Mazumi school. Um, and uh, so um, after the morning tea, uh, at some, in the second half of, today, of this uh, morning, we're going to do a kind of, I'm going to step you through this kind of process that um, um, Genpo Mazel uh, developed. Um, and it's, so it's kind of like you can see there's a process of self-discovery, self-intimacy, and, and like it's, it's kind of like complements koan work. Um, I, um, 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 I completed quite a number of koans because I also trained in the Diamond Sangha school, but I didn't go right to the end of that. Um, and koan work can be quite fun, even the classical koans, where you kind of like you embody the characters in the koan or the the the, the koan itself it could be a buffalo jumping through a window or something, where you become the buffalo, or you, you can have fun with koans in the same way you could have fun with um, you know um, working with dreams or charades or that kind of thing. Um, and um, so it's all about uh, the you know that key word embracing embracing these different aspects of ourselves mm -hmm. because. Um, in terms of the uh, the work of Hal Stone, for example, he started to identify, and you know, there's lots and lots of different aspects or minds that we have, or mind states or self states, and um, I think we can actually um, um, there's, there's kind of like three three basic emotion regulation systems in a human being, and a lot of these voices or self states correspond to those. One of the one of the first, you know. Um, emotion regulation states we come up to in our lives is the is the threat protection system and uh, so many of us have a, 
variations on a controller protector kind of uh, part or voice or energy. And that takes uh, various forms. And, um, and um, you know, anything could be the perfectionist, the pleaser. There's, there's lots and lots of different forms that these things take. Um, another emotion regulation system is the kind of filiation, attachment, self-soothing system. And you can find, you know, we, we, we're looking there at the child and at the parent. So you're looking at... Uh, you know, a vulnerable child, a playful child, a magical child, or a, or a damaged child, or a hurt child. And uh, similarly with parental voices, you can have a positive, encouraging parental voice, or you could have a negative, discouraging parental voice. And, um, and then we have what you might call the, um, the drive, the excitement system, seeking out good things, this wanting to achieve, uh, the dopamine system. And that could include uh, things like uh, the pusher or the striver or the achiever aspects of ourself. And um, so we have all of these different components of what you might call our human self, um, what it means to be a human being, a human person. Um, and um, just an example of the child aspect of it. I was watching last night, I watched Lion. Has anybody seen Lion yet? Yeah. <laughs> You cry a lot. <laughs> it's a good one for that. And uh, there's a scene in the movie. Um, uh, so, um, so for those of you who don't know the story, there's uh, this little boy um, from a certain region in India um, hangs out with his older brother, and they, and um, and then one night at a railway station, his brother just leaves him for a momentarily on the on the platform because he's very tired, but his brother doesn't come back. And we find out why later on, but um, so he's left wandering Calcutta on his own because he'd been on this. He accidentally gets on this train which takes him to Calcutta, so like sixteen hundred kilometers away from where he used to live. And and um, and then he, anyway, he finally got he gets picked up by the authorities and uh, he gets adopted out to a a family in Tasmania. And this was about nineteen. Um, 89 or something, or something around that. So this is fairly a recent time period. And it's a true story. Yeah, yeah, it's a true story. And um, so he grows up uh, uh, with his, uh, his family in, in Hobart. And, uh, and then one, one, he goes off to study in, in Melbourne, and there's a scene in the movie where he, uh, he, he's um, having a, so it's like a dinner party, and... Uh, there are some uh, people who are from India there, and there's some Indian food there. And in the movie, it's kind of like it's like a, a sweet. I can't remember the name of it now. But um, as a little boy, he really want, he really loved it and wanted to buy it, but he couldn't afford it. And this little Gulab sweet, jam. what's he called? Gulab jamun. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and um, so he sees this and smells it, and the the memories start to come back to him. Mm. Memories which he'd probably compartmentalized away before. Mm. And he goes, and um, what happens is um, his, 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 I think it's like his girlfriend who's there with him, uh, she sees that he's, he's sort of like gone away. And he, he sort of, he turns around to her and he just says, I'm lost. And so he's, as soon as he speaks, he's speaking from the voice of his five-year-old child. And as soon as he gives a voice to that five-year-old child, he can't go back to being the self that he was before then, or 
he has to then uh, address this sense of uh, wanting to return home, his sense of lostness. He wants to uh, find his mother. And, uh, and the book is called The Long Journey Home. He wrote, and the, the film's made from that. And, um, and so the rest of the movie unfolds about how he finds his way home again. But just that example of how that little child is often still part of us mm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and how we can learn to get in touch with it through this kind of uh, this work. Um, so, so we've got these, what we might call these, these, all these different cells within us, our, our human selves. And uh, if we were to use the, uh, use a kind of a metaphor of a triangle uh, for the human being, so at the base of the triangle, you can picture a person sitting in Zaz and in the middle of the triangle, then on the left-hand side of the triangle is our personal self, our relative, the relative world. <clears throat> and that's where all those cells are contained. But on the other side of the triangle, on the right-hand corner, we can start to explore uh, what you might call the more transpersonal states uh, of mind. And um, these can also have different aspects as well. Um, for example, the non-seeking mind, big mind, big heart, or simply no self. And uh, these states are much more in the domain of being rather than becoming. And uh, in, they're not in the world of the temporal world, the world of story, the world of past and future. They're just here, now, being states. And so... In, in the process of Zen, it's about um, we're starting to try and get some insight or realization into these. And traditionally, that's just been through Zen, through long hours of Zazen practice. And, um, and usually it would be uh, like, you know, going on sessions, they're called touching the heart-mind in Zen, a session, long, arduous hours where eventually you just get, where you're, you're, you're seeking, you know, you're seeking, you're seeking, you're seeking, you want some kind of breakthrough. And uh, eventually, just from utter exhaustion, maybe you just give up, and all of a sudden, you're there. You know, it's, you sort of realised it and had some insight. Um, but um, maybe it's possible to have that kind of insight without doing all the arduous long hours of practice. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> and, uh, and this is some of the work that some Zen teachers have been trying to integrate this dialogue work, and again, Roshi being one of them. And so we get some insight into the big mind, and that is kind of like a sense of isness. It's kind of like just here. There's not much emotion in it. And it's kind of like uh, the observer self, if you like, or the witness, or the witness might fall away. But it, it's it, it's just just is. Uh, includes everything. But then, so you go to the apex of the triangle, and that's where we're starting to integrate the two, the, the human self and the and the big mind. And, and at the top of this, we might call it the big heart. And, and that then, um, uh, that's where the process of in integrating. That. And that's a kind of never-ending process in integration between the two. Um, and uh, so, we, you know, there's, we start to try and get to know ourselves and, uh, and we want to try and maintain that sense of big heart in our everyday lives. So, and, uh, and we'll explore that a little bit more later on uh, when we do the, uh, the process work uh, after morning tea. So we'll finish there at the moment. 
Uh, are we going for time? Um, is there any time left or I finished the time? <laughs> so there's time for one question or comment, if there's anyone who could comment or question. Could you give me uh, your understanding of koan? Koan? Koan. Um, or what does the word, the actual word mean, you mean? Or? Yes, yeah. Oh, okay. It kind of like, I think it's, it's, it's something about like a being a public case um, in, in ancient China. And so they were kind of, um, and... Um, so I, I forget the literal uh, translation of the word, but it was um, something that could be sort of documented. But, okay. in, but, but in terms of Zen practice, it's, um, it became more about a way of um, uh, documenting the various ways in which Zen masters have usually come, they're usually enlightenment stories, yeah. how they, and, but, yeah. the, the, but usually they kind of question now, there's lots of questions in koans, and it's uh, kind of like you're using the question. The question becomes the, the, the meditation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the most famous one that starts the collection off is, you know, uh, does a dog have Buddha nature? And the master, the master goes moo, which literally means no in Chinese. Mm. But moo. Uh, and then so you start to really absorb yourself in that koan and you just keep on yeah. working on that question right. and you can't get an intellectual answer to it, it has to come from somewhere else. So, so they could be seen as uh, recording an insight for, um, for future uh, meditations on? Yeah, there's a number of collections, this is one of the collections, there's um, three or four collections and uh, so there would be a, a Zen master would would collect them together. So a number of koans, there's 50, yeah. 48 in this one, I think. There's like 100 in the Blue Cliff Record and 100 in the, the Book of Tran uh, Serenity. But like, so they, they could collect them together. And then there was a very famous Zen teacher called Haku in uh, around the 17th century, who then, uh, he was in the Rinzai tradition, created a kind of curriculum almost where people work through the koans. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, Buddha's words wouldn't be seen as koans, but... Uh, uh, yeah, there'll be, there'll be koans with Buddha's words in there. Okay. Because yeah. the, 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 the Chinese uh, Zen tradition was always very keen to trace their lineage right back to Sakyamuni Buddha. Yeah. It's about 30 generations or something like that, from Sakyamuni to the legendary Bodhisattva, who, who travelled from India to China mm. to form the Zen school. Yeah. Thank you. All right.